Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, for our 118th episode, the 8th of Season 2, A Season of Short Works, I've chosen to present a very short story. Many of my creative writing colleagues write flash fiction, and they've often tried to persuade me to do the same. However, Flash fiction has never been a medium that came naturally, because for me, every character, like every person, has a backstory. And usually, it's lengthy. (laughs) Nevertheless, I thought I would give it a go this week, mostly because of a flash of an idea that I had while driving home one evening from work. The neighborhood of Cincinnati in which I live runs parallel to Columbia Parkway. If you've ever driven along that stretch of road, gazing up at the mansions overhead on one side and then down at the precipitous drop to the river below, perhaps you've considered the fact that all of those rich people descending from upon high in their extremely expensive automobiles are but one brake failure away from total disaster. Then, Along that same ride, as I was listening to another podcast that's a favorite of mine called Witches, Magic, Murder, and Mystery, I put a link to it in the show notes. If you like any of those topics, you should definitely check it out. One of the hosts told a story about how she and her husband thought that the backup camera sensor in their electric car had accidentally picked up a ghost, thinking, with its electronic brain, that it was a person. Apparently, someone had died of a motorcycle accident many years before, right in front of the turn to their mother's driveway. And so, that story made me start thinking. If automobile sensors and cameras really could pick up ghosts, wouldn't that be an interesting topic for a flash fiction story? Hmm. Also, While I was writing, I decided to combine my concern about these issues with a few other things in today's society that continue to disturb me. One being the fact that self-driving cars exist in general. Second, the heart-stopping weirdness that I feel every time I'm out jogging and can sense but not hear an electric car approaching behind me. It's a truly unnerving sensation. They really should make up some sort of fake motor sound for them, I think. It's unnatural for something that can go that fast to be so nearly silent. And finally, the bizarre paradox of the world in which we live now, where in theory, under the laws of a completely average Midwestern state like Ohio, a doctor could very easily have the level of diabolical control over his mistress-slash-colleague that one of my characters in this story possesses, yet he remains willfully blind to it, completely oblivious to the power that his wealth and privilege provides for him. Until, that is, something forces him to pay attention. But by that time, it's too late. As you will hear when you listen to this week's decidedly short story, which is called Blind Spot by Vivian Catfield. Maggie stood outside of the bronze gates waiting for Peter. She'd hurried out of the lab as soon as class was dismissed, hoping that she wouldn't miss him before he left for night rounds at the hospital. Looking at the steep incline of his driveway, Maggie couldn't tell whether Peter's Land Rover was still in the garage. 
Maggie wanted to go up there, to the front door of Peter's house, and knock like a normal person. But Maggie knew that she couldn't, because she wasn't a normal person. His wife could be home, and she would ask questions that Maggie didn't even want to imagine. Still, Maggie couldn't help but hear Ingrid's voice, fretting in her cool, clipped Scandinavian accent. Peter, why is Maggie here? I thought you dismissed her. We talked about this. I know your heart is in the right place, wanting to help the poor girl, but enough is enough. She shouldn't have taken your car without asking, especially to drive out of state to, well, you know. It's illegal and dangerous. If people found out that you knew about it, that you advised her, you could lose your medical license or even go to jail. Then where would we be? We can't be the shepherds of every lost sheep in the flocks we tend. Some must be left to wander and to find their own way, on the paths that they have chosen. We have made the right choices. It's their problem. With Ingrid, it was always the royal we, an exclusivity that never included people like Maggie. Even though for almost a year, Maggie had been welcomed into their house by Peter and his wife. Ever since the first day that Maggie had started her clinicals in pediatrics, when Peter had arrived at the hospital red-eyed and tearing at his hair. That week, Ingrid had finally gone back to work after her maternity leave from the Arts Council where she served on the board. The British au pair whom Ingrid had selected from months of interviews with hundreds of candidates got homesick and went back to England after only a few days on the job. Maggie offered to become their new sitter, even if the arrangement was only temporary. A soon-to-graduate wannabe pediatric nurse who was willing to ride home with Peter after her clinical shift and to sit up with the baby while Ingrid was away at the galleries. It was too good to be true, Ingrid had said. That was how Maggie felt at first, too. It was too good to be true that the very first morning, Peter had kissed her in the kitchen as she made him breakfast. While over the following weeks, he'd subtly gotten closer to her, confiding more in her, until, well, it happened. Although they never went out anywhere together, Maggie never complained. The compound of Peter and Ingrid's home had all of the things that they would have gone out to do locally anyway. An enormous pool to swim in, a game room with a tiki lounge bigger than most bars, and a surround sound theater with heated, massaging recliners. Peter would order takeout for the two of them from some place where a single meal cost more than Maggie's grocery budget for the month. Then they dined together in the otherworldly, flying saucer-shaped atrium that encircled the house like one of Saturn's rings. Gazing out of its panoramic windows overlooking the river, they curled up like two cats, falling asleep in one another's arms. Maggie was meticulous about cleaning up everything afterward, so that when Ingrid returned home for the evening, it was as if some magical fairy had been attending to the baby all day, and Maggie had never existed at all. After the cramped apartment, 
that Maggie shared with her two roommates near the college and working at the cheap, overcrowded daycare filled with kids whose parents often tried to pawn them off as not being sick when clearly they were, going to Peter's house was like being in a reality show, only one for a reality that Maggie had never experienced. Inside, it was like living in a cloud at sunset, every surface enameled an opalescent white or plushly upholstered in tasteful shades of mauve and taupe, a sensory cleansing rose-colored vision of heaven. Maggie loathed her own apartment that she shared with the other girls. Not only the picked-up-from-the-curb randomness of furniture in her own room, but the crystals and candles discount hippie boho vibe from her younger women's studies major roommate and the half-assed gothic gloom derived from her seasonal gig at the Halloween store of the other one. Brought on, Maggie surmised, by the woman graduate, woman's graduate literary thesis on morbid Victorian novels that never seemed to end. Going to Peter's house after clinicals every day was like walking into a safer, cleansed, more reassuring other life. Nothing bad could happen in a place so filled with clean lines and white vegan leather custom-made sectional sofas. Nightmares would simply slide off the edges. All of that changed, of course, when Maggie told Peter that she was pregnant. Maggie didn't own a car. When she'd asked to borrow Peter's Land Rover to drive to Illinois for obvious reasons, he refused. She'd allowed him to drive her to the hospital where they worked that morning, waiting five minutes and walking in through separate doors, as usual. But then Maggie followed Peter to his office and stole the keys from his coat pocket. She'd almost made it to Chicago for her appointment before the police picked her up. Before they let her go, the cops had droned on and on about how lucky Maggie was that the doctor hadn't wanted to press charges against her because he knew that she'd been having a rough time lately. Peter told the police that Maggie had taken his car to go see her sick grandmother after he'd said that he didn't have time to drive her, which wasn't true, even though no one checked. Who would question the word of a highly paid and well-respected doctor, in contrast with the alleged truth that Maggie might offer, especially for a crime that he was so willing to forgive, all circumstances considered? The return to Peter's house that afternoon ended in a tense confrontation. You will have this baby, and then I will see to it that it is placed with an adoption agency, anonymously in a closed proceeding. If you try to block it or make any kind of scene whatsoever, I swear to you that I will make damn sure you never pass your licensure exam or graduate from nursing school. However, if you behave like a good little girl, I will see to it that you are able to find a solid placement in the hospital of your choice in Chicago, provided that we never speak of it again. Actually, it would be best if we never speak again at all, for Ingrid's sake and the child's. Is that understood? Of course, Maggie had agreed. What else could she have said? No was not an option. And yet, there she was, standing in Peter's driveway, waiting to tell him what exactly. 
that she wanted Peter to leave Ingrid and their own baby for her and theirs. Maggie knew that that wasn't realistic, and even if it were, she also knew in her heart that she didn't want it. There had been something too cold, too controlled, in the way that Peter had been so quick to extract her from his life. As if she were a mattress that had become soiled and needed to be disposed of. No, what Maggie really wanted to tell Peter, what she decided when she planted herself at the bottom of the steep incline of his driveway, was that she'd changed her mind. If Peter didn't want Maggie to raise the child on her own, out of fear that someday she would make its presence known, then Maggie didn't want to have it at all. As Maggie stood at the bottom of the driveway pondering this, Peter watched her from the overlooked balcony of his bedroom. He knew why she had come. Padding silently back inside, Peter pressed the button on the smart house keypad to open the garage door. Then he clicked the remote start for his Land Rover and punched in the location for work. Soundlessly, the massive electric vehicle backed out of the garage and maneuvered itself into position at the top of Peter's steep driveway. Then Peter clicked the control to off. The SUV hesitated for a moment as a warning to engage the parking brake flashed. Peter ignored this and pressed the control for off once more, leaving the vehicle in neutral. Then he went back to bed. The coroner's report stated that when the vehicle struck Maggie at the bottom of Peter's driveway, it was going approximately 55 miles per hour. Maggie, whom the report alleged, had been jogging past, unfortunately, at just the wrong moment, never knew what hit her. The cause of the accident was listed as a blind spot, which made Maggie invisible over the near-vertical slope to the malfunctioning autopilot system of the Land Rover. Three evenings after the accident, after Peter's lawyers had filed both an insurance claim for damages to repair the Land Rover and another suit for damages against the company due to faulty automated instrument design, Peter decided to return to work at the hospital. The replacement Land Rover, which had been delivered by the dealership that afternoon and was identical to the one Peter owned, arrived in his garage as silently as its predecessor had departed. Somewhere in between, Ingrid had left with the baby. Peter wasn't certain regarding when Ingrid had departed. Not much in the mood to drive himself, Peter programmed the destination for work into the autopilot for his replacement Land Rover. He pressed the button to raise the garage door. However, when Peter glanced up from checking the email app on his phone, he saw a shape in the backup camera. The shape of a young woman standing at the end of his driveway. The warning lights flashed as Peter stared in disbelief at the image. The woman's eyes reflected back the ominous red of taillights, like a doomed animal. Then the vehicle began to roll backward. Peter stomped on the brake pedal as the car continued to pick up speed. When it reached the bottom of the driveway, Peter heard a loud thump as the back glass of the Land Rover shattered. A body, a Maggie-like body 
Peter realized in terror, writhed into the open cargo area where he'd ordered the back seats removed, trying to crawl toward him on dislocated shoulders. As the vehicle zoomed across the parkway, she wrapped her broken arms over the driver's seat headrest around Peter's throat. When they hit the guardrail, she gave a hard jerk, snapping his neck. Then the SUV tumbled, end over end, down into the churning river water below. When Peter awoke, he couldn't feel his legs. He tried to open his mouth to scream, but no sound came out. Pressing the button, at last, Peter summoned a nurse. When the nurse came, it was Maggie. She had been waiting for him. This is the end of the short story, Blind Spot, by Vivian Catfield. Be sure to tune in next week for another new short story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>